and really worked hard to not be a politician. And um, part of that means that when they speak, you listen, that their problems matter. And when somebody has a pothole in front of their home, they don't care about the park. They don't care about the recreation center. They don't care about downtown. They care about the pothole in front of their home or that their garbage can didn't picked up. Therefore, I better care. Welcome back to Walk Like Beggars. Today is probably one of my favorite episodes of the entire podcast thus far. We are here with John Curtis, the U.S. Representative for Utah's 3rd Congressional District at U.S. Congress. John Curtis proudly represents Utah's 3rd Congressional District. Prior before that, he was an entrepreneur. He started by selling watches. He worked for O.C. Tanner. He created and sold a business called Action Target. And then he became mayor of Provo. Not only was he the mayor of Provo, he was one of the most highly favorable mayors of all time. Uh, he was selected as number one elected official in social media, and he has the craziest sock collection you could ever imagine. Seriously, I look to him as a mentor and just as someone who I just admire greatly. Love this interview. He's got fun stories about Donald Trump and about voting at Congress incorrectly. Dive in, guys. Enjoy. I have, um, I, to me, it's interesting, <laughs> an interesting story, uh, because it's a little bit different. I, I served a mission for our church, mm-hmm. and um, the whole time I was over there, I heard from my parents, especially my mom, don't worry about what you're going to do when you come back. It will all work out, right? So the day after I got back, those same people, especially my mom, said, what are you going to do? <laughs> and I had no idea. I hadn't uh, really given it any thought and didn't really know. So I, I was enrolled in Brigham Young University and started that uh, process. And um, interestingly, through a series of events, um, I found myself working for the Citizen Watch Company, selling watches in five uh, states and carrying a, a, a 400 watches in my trunk while I was going to Brigham University. And um, wow. if you had an hour, I'd tell you all about those series of events. But in, in essence... I just went with the flow. I kind of went where life took me, and that's where it took me, and it was very natural. And uh, I've kind of found that through my whole life that by kind of being ready to seize an opportunity, that I didn't have to worry so much about finding that opportunity. It found me. Interesting. So when you say, like, being ready for an opportunity, like, how does one get ready or how did you? I think the biggest uh, part of that is saying yes to the opportunity, um, and and so by being ready, it's kind of watching for something. And uh, I think uh, a lot of times um, opportunities come into our lives, and they're inconvenient. There's risk, uh, right, involved with it, and it's uncomfortable, and so we say no. And I've tried to um, live my life watching. Uh, for that opportunity. And then I think the other thing about being ready, I'd use this opportunity I have now to be in Congress. When I was mayor of Provo, people would say to me all the time, wow, what's the next office you're going to run for? And my answer was honest, and I would always say to them, look, I'm worried about being a good mayor. And my philosophy was, if I go into the office every day being the best mayor I can be, then those opportunities will present themselves far more likely than if I go seek them. And if I spend all my time trying to, to be a congressman when I'm mayor, um, I'm not a very good mayor. Yeah. And uh, so that's, I think, what I mean by being prepared for it. I love that. I feel like you just like be the best you can be today and that's the tool for better it. for yes. tomorrow. Yes, yes, then good things will happen. Yeah. Exactly. So you're selling watches out of your trunk. <laughs> yeah. So are you just popping this trunk up, open, so showing it, was, it to... It was, uh, so it was really fun. So as a 25-year-old BYU student, yeah. I, I felt like I'd arrived. You know, I had a real <laughs> job. Everything all these people were going to school for, I had found. And... It paid extremely well. It was 100% commission, and I was good at it and um, found a real knack for building relationships and, and selling these watches, and so I really loved it. And so I would call on jewelry stores, large and small, uh, throughout the area. Um, when I first started, 
the car companies had a rule, I don't know if they still have it, that you couldn't rent a car unless you were 25. And I was not yet 25, and I <laughs> flew out to Denver, uh, which is part of my district, and nobody would let me rent a car. So I went to this place called Rent-A-Wreck, and they didn't care what age you were. <laughs> and uh, it was just really fun as, a, as you know, in my early 20s to have this job, and um, calling these jewelry stores and, and show them the line of watches. and. I think one thing that your listeners might enjoy is, okay, this was, I hate to admit it, 1985. Yeah. And I had a laptop computer. It was Ooh. a TRS-80, which means it was made by Radio Shack. <laughs> had a 64K of memory that I had upgraded from 32K. It ran on four AA batteries. Oh, my <laughs> gosh. And I would take that little laptop into the jewelry store, and I'd set it on the counters, and it... it it just bought you credibility. And I would turn it on and I would say, well, the computer says you should order, you know, <laughs> this, this, this. Okay. <laughs> because nobody had that. Yeah. And it was, it was, in a way, it was fun to be in that era where it was so easy to differentiate yourself. Mm -hmm. um, and that was the good part of it. The bad part of it is I'm really jealous of people who are starting their careers now and have tools that I couldn't even dream of, um, right, to, to do their job, to, for crying out loud, to, to, to have a map on your phone instead of in your lap, yeah. right, when yeah. you're driving around, and just like the simplest things. I'd, I'd drive into a town and uh, I'd go to a pay phone, call all the hotels to see who had a room and what the rates were. Unbelievable. Uh, and so that part of me is jealous yeah um, but the part of me was where let me tell you how easy it was to impress uh, with a laptop computer was pretty cool i think that's rad because you're doing this with a computer and then just i just know your story a little bit better than you know probably a lot of our listeners but as a mayor you did that you know with social media and then as a congressman i feel like you, i mean you've got your soft game you're always differentiating yourself and i think that's really powerful thank you and i i think that that maybe i learned a little bit from that computer in that how much important it is to be just a step ahead um, of where everybody else is at so i always tried you mentioned social media i always tried to be the first one to embrace the new thing, whether it was Snapchat or Marco Polo, um, and um, to do it before others did it. Even though you had to fumble your way through it a little bit, mm -hmm. it, it just was this huge advantage to be the first one there. That's cool. So tell us why you switched after, why you stopped selling watches and yeah. what you ended up doing. So I was a whopping 25 years old and yeah. thought I had you know, conquered the world. Um, I mentioned that I was good at it. I, in my second year, they named me the Citizen Watch Company Salesman of the Year. Wow. At 25 years of age. And there was nothing left for me to do. It, 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 does that make sense? Yeah. In, in a way, it's like, well, I don't want to spend the rest of my career here. I've done what I came to do. And um, I kind of had a fun moment. The, the night I started, I was in a hotel in uh, Los Angeles for the Citizen Watch Company. And... I remember laying in bed and saying to myself, if I can't be salesman of the year within five years, I'm going to leave this company. And ironically, they made me that the second year, and that made me want to leave the company. <laughs> and I just felt like I, I, there was more out there, and I was really hungry for what else I could go do and, and accomplish. And I wasn't willing to, to spend my life uh, just doing that. That's cool. So where did that like hunger come from, do you think? I've had, I'm kind of, um, I'm an interesting entrepreneur because I have a restlessness like entrepreneurs, but um, I also like a little bit more stability than the average entrepreneur. So I found, with exception of that, that my attention spans about a decade, which is longer than most entrepreneurs, but I still reach that point in a career where I feel like I've done everything I can do, I've accomplished everything I do, I need to, a radical change. So my poor wife, every 10 years, knows <laughs> it's coming. I'm starting over. Yeah. And I, don't, I, don't, I haven't parlayed it into another career that could build on the previous one. It's been a totally, total redo, <laughs> right? For instance, politics. Mm -hmm. um, you're starting all over. Everything that you've learned, and you don't get paid for it. It helps, but you don't get paid for it. 
And so I, I have that bug in me that says it's time for something else. Interesting. So you went from watches, and I want to get into politics, so we'll get there. But after watches, did you start with Action Target, or what was the so next? So I had a entrepreneurial moment, okay. and I uh, picked my wife up, and we moved over to Taiwan, which is where I uh, served this mission. And we wanted it to do an import-export uh, business, and it was a disaster. <laughs> um, everything we touched arrived broken. Um, had some type of problem with it. This was Taiwan in the, yeah. in the late 80s. And um, so we did that for a year without making a penny and um, came back from that and said, uh, you know, I need something a little bit more stable. So I went to work for the O.C. Tanner Company up in Salt Lake. And uh, I'll I, I tell you, it was an amazing experience. The training um, that they gave me, the opportunity to... to be mentored by, in my opinion, some of the best business leaders in the state, it was really a fabulous experience for me. So it was a part of my life when I was working for somebody else, um, but I gained so much from that that helped me uh, later on. Yeah, I'm curious because you say you got like this mentorship. So, I mean, a lot of listeners and ourselves included are always looking for like mentors, and you hear this word like mentor, yeah. like. So from your experience and from your perspective, like, what should we be looking for in a mentor? Um, for me, it's somebody I respect. And um, I, I don't know, I have this, um, when I look at somebody, I very quickly assess what they have that I wish I had. And you can find that right in almost anybody. Yeah. And um, I, was, I, I was surrounded by people that had a wealth of that, that I would look at and say, oh, I just really like this about them. And um, they, I had a chance to travel with them, I had a chance to work with them, make calls with them, and really glean from them. Um, and, and these were a host of people that um, just had a lot of skills that, that, that I admired. And so it wasn't a formal mentoring uh, process at all. Back in the late 80s, we didn't talk about mentoring the way that we talk about it now. Yeah. But I was really a student at the, at the feet of some, some really um, inspiring people. So you talked about, I'm just going to rewind a little mm -hmm. bit with this Taiwan business, and it failed. Yeah. I think failure is something that you kind of have to go through. What would you... Looking back, what would you have done differently? Uh, that's uh, an interesting question because my regret, I have very few of them, but my regret is that when I came home from that experience, I sought more stability instead of more risk. And Sounds natural. I've always, that is the one part, that, like I said, there's very few, but it's the one part of my life where I have a what if. Um, I had, um, from my experience, with the Citizen Watch Company, I understood watches really well. I had an opportunity to, to bring off-label watches back from Taiwan and sell them uh, here in the United States. I passed on that to take the job uh, with O.C. Tanner. Yeah. And um, that, like I say, that's my dang, what if uh, yeah. moment is uh, if I'd have gone pure entrepreneur instead of saying, I'm going to take that opportunity to work for somebody else. But I wouldn't trade as I look back on my experience and as we just mentioned, the things that I learned there, many of them made me the mayor that I was. Um, I those, those learning moments and the people that I had a chance to, to see how they did things um, has made all the difference in my life. Interesting. Okay, so O.C. Tanner, then what, what happened next? Um, I got the bug. Yes. And was it 10 years it was later? Pretty darn close to 10 years. <laughs> uh, we were living out in Virginia, and part of that bug was wanting to get back here to Utah. Mm -hmm. And um, really knowing that I was missing something in my life by not being the owner uh, of a company and not having that experience. And um, so I sought that out, and that's where Action Target came along. A, a, a very good friend and, and cousin of mine and his partner had been um, getting this going, and quite frankly, they did a lot of the hard work. I joined them uh, you know, after they passed a couple of those hard years. Uh, doesn't mean we didn't have our hard years after I joined them, but uh, I joined them as a, as a partner and an owner of that company of Action Target. And where at O.C. Tanner, 
we were surrounded by talent and surrounded by resources, financial resources. Action Target was exact opposite. We were shoestring, poor, um, not able to hire the talent that we really needed. Um, you know, just really, um, really lean at uh, OC10, or we would brag about the carpet. At Action Target, we would brag about the holes in the carpet <laughs> to show you know how thrifty we were. And really pleased that I had the combination of those two experiences because uh, life since then, I've been able to call on how do you take advantage of having resources and how do you deal when you don't have resources. And for instance, running the city of Provo, I, both of those were just incredibly important uh, times when you had to be super lean mm -hmm. and careful and times when you had to use resources and take advantage of the resources that you've had. And I've always felt grateful that I had those two contrasting experiences. Yeah. Why did you choose Action Target? Was it, did your cousin just tell you about it? Was it looking promising? Um, I chose it because it, in many ways, called to me. It was um, a challenge. Um, it was a people that I knew. Um, it was a chance to come back to Utah. Um, it, it was kind of like everything came together. And it, it, was, just, it was one of those things that, to me, um, as I mentioned, the, these windows open up, mm -hmm. right? These opportunities come my way. I felt like it was um, something that had come my way. That's cool. Interesting. So were you at Action Target for 10 years then? Yeah, pretty darn close to 10 <laughs> years. So uh, give us a kind of a snapshot of what happened in those that 10 years. Um, we worked hard. Uh, I'm, I'm telling you, I, I sometimes look at people who um, their, their gift is in programming or their gift is in uh, something that's that um, when you go to mass produce it, it's, it's easier. Mm -hmm. Everything we sold had to be made hardcore manufacturing uh, we we had a fabrication shop and so we would we would sell we would design we would install these shooting ranges and then we would collect money um, and our inventory costs we had millions of dollars of steel sitting on the floor that we couldn't collect money for for 12 months sometimes and it was very very lean and um uh, and, and we worked, we, like I said, well, we, we worked hard and we traveled the country and, and, and we just worked our tails off and the people that worked for us worked their tails off. Uh, but we were able to, to build something that um, was the best in, in, in many ways, the best in the world. The equipment that we manufactured there uh, was very, very good and our customers were, were, were very, very well um, suited when they bought our equipment. And um, being the owners, we were able to offer the customer service and, and take care of our customers in a way where, where they really liked us. And we were able to take care of employees in a way where, where they were having a good experience as well. And uh, really enjoyed it. Um, there were lean days. Um, I, I remember, as so many entrepreneurs do, flying across the country begging a customer to pay me so I could get back on the plane and come back and make <laughs> payroll. Uh, and every year the bank would come to us and say, if you want your credit line, you have to put your home up as collateral. And, uh, and those are, you know, tough years. And that's why I think in Congress now we need people who understand what they do when they put regulations and taxes on business. We're so quick to say, oh, those businesses, those, you know, those rich businesses. And we forget that the average business is not Microsoft or, you know, Bill Gates. It's... It's those guys slugging it out, staying up late, putting their homes on the line, uh, flying across the country to make payroll. That's 99% of the businesses in our district. Yeah. How did your wife take this transition from this? <laughs> so I couldn't do what I have done over my career without a wife who loved adventure and who was game for moving up, uh, moving across the country, starting all over again. And so I'm really fortunate that um, not only did she tolerate it, uh, she embraced it and um, was kind of part of the team. And um, really fortunate because I know that's a rare, a rare thing. Was she always just like, yeah, let's do it? Or did she ever give you some gruff and then came around to it? 99% um, let's do it. That's cool. Um, you know, I think this political thing yeah. <laughs> has, has given both of us pause uh, for, <laughs> you know, is this the right thing? And, uh -huh. and after being uh, the mayor of Provo, 
Um, it was not an easy decision for either of us to say, let's go do Congress. Um, and I think that's probably been one of the roughest transitions, quite frankly. Interesting. So I want to talk about this transition. You went from entrepreneurism, business, and then you're like, I'm going to try out this mayor thing. So how did that come about? What was that decision process like? What window opened? So I would, I would, I'm glad you mentioned that because I would say it was a window that opened and generally in my life when these windows have opened, they have called me, if that makes sense. It's, it's been compelling yeah. um, to, to, to jump through that, that open window. And, and that was what being mayor was like. Fortunately, we had sold our business. And um, so I was looking, in this case, I was looking for the next thing. And I'd spent some time talking to people and, 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 and trying to figure out what was out there for me. And we had not had, as a business, a good relationship with the city of Provo. And so I had in, in, inherent in me um, a, a knowledge that we could be doing better as a city, uh, especially the way that we treated businesses, and um, wanted, wanted to see what I could do um, to, to make that happen. And um, as I look back, one of the things that was the most fun for me was dealing with businesses. Really? Yeah. That's cool. So I want to know, what was the first thing you had to do to say, okay, I'm running for mayor? After you decided, I'm running for mayor, what was that first action, that first step you took? Telling people. Yeah. And that was hard. Um, it is, uh, to me, it's a little bit um, braggadocious to say, I think I'm good enough to be mayor. Um, and it was, so it was a little awkward announcing and telling people that, mm-hmm. that, that I was going to do that. And you, you, you know, you tend to look at people and you can kind of see in their eyes, oh, he thinks he's, uh, or what's he thinking that he can, that, you know, why can he do this? And uh, So that was the first step, is just telling people. Yeah, interesting. So you get elected and your approval rating's through the roof, like insane. And so I just want to know, like, what principles did guided you as a mayor? Like, what was, what guided you just as your, like, mile markers? In many ways, um, uh, the, the mayor that I was was a sum total of those experiences that we've been talking about. The leanness, uh, the having resources, uh, the not knowing uh, how we were going to solve a problem and having to solve hard problems. And, um, and then I would layer on top of that a, a real commitment um, that as mayor, I worked for the people of Provo and they were my boss. And I hope that people perceived that, that I was not a typical politician and really worked hard to not be a politician. And um, part of that means that when they speak, you listen, that their problems matter. And when somebody has a pothole in front of their home, they don't care about the park. They don't care about the recreation center. They don't care about downtown. They care about the pothole in front of their home or that their garbage can didn't picked up. Therefore, I better care. Mm-hmm. And if I didn't care, I wasn't a good mayor. Just to clarify, so did you win the very first time? I did. And it was, was a close it, race. It was close? It was. I, I ran against a former state legislator, a businessman in Provo, somebody very well respected in the community. And it was a race that I walked into election night not knowing if I had won. Why do you think you won? I worked my tail off. I worked harder and I will. That's, I will always work harder than the next person knocked on doors, um, met people, just put my whole heart into every single person I talked to and for six months, I can't remember the exact amount of time, for a long time, just really worked hard. So it seems like I ran for a student office in high school, right? And it was, <laughs> it was so vulnerable. <laughs> it and, is. And starting a business also is really vulnerable. Telling Absolutely. someone you're going to do something, you kind of get that same look in their eyes. What would you say to people who are trying to start businesses and have to go through that valley of yeah, vulnerability? Yeah, you have to plow through it. Anything I've ever done of any consequence, there were moments of doubt and moments of, I, I don't know how I'm going to do this. And every time you plow through that, you just put your head down and plow through it. And if you keep plowing, all of a sudden you look up and you've actually accomplished something. I love that. I love that. So I want to know, like, before we get into running for Congress and everything, 
what was the hardest part about being mayor? And then also, what was the best part about being mayor? Uh, the hardest part was I did not have enough time to do everything I wanted to do. I, I literally loved every minute of it and every part of it. And um, I couldn't get to everybody I wanted to get to. I could, and, and that was hard on me. Um, I, those things haunt me when I've got two events in a night and I can only go to one. Mm-hmm. And um, so that, that did truly bother me. What I loved about it is um, that there seemed to be a connection between me and the residents of Provo that, that had a little bit of magic in it. And um, everything we did felt like it, there was a little bit of magic in it. Uh, everything from the rooftop concert series to these crazy T-shirts that were so popular mm-hmm. to um, the restaurants in the downtown area to the recreation center and, and, and everything that scheduled service at the airport just felt to me and the residents like um, it was Camelot and, and it was a, a magical time for Provo. And that was really cool to be part of. Yeah. I understand it's probably impossible to do this, but I have no idea what a mayor does. And I'm sure you do everything, but is there like a generic kind of daily routine? You go to the office, they give you a stack of papers, or how does it kind so of So I'm laughing because we actually did a video uh, of, uh, and it's called I'm the Mayor. And we put it to music, and I can't carry a tune. So they kind of made it a little bit like a rap, a little bit. It wasn't full, you know, it wasn't like that, but. Yeah. Uh, and it said, hey, I'm the mayor of Provo City. And then I went through uh, and told about my day-to-day activities. But in essence, you're the CEO of the city. And that means that you have responsibility for everything from police and fire uh, to roads, sewers, parks. Um, it, it's, it's, I mean, what the city, airport, golf course, uh, it's a major, major corporation in, in many, many ways and um, employee morale and all of those issues are your responsibility. Now there's different forms of government in our state. Provo has what we call a strong mayor form of government, which means you are the executive of the city and responsible for all those functions. You are the guy. And um, that's where the business experience was so critical. Um, Understanding employee morale, understanding decisions, the very first thing that happened as mayor is uh, it was it was beginning of 2000, 2010. We'd just gone through um, that, that terrible economy. Mm-hmm. People call it the worst economy of our lives. We had to cut massive amounts of money out of the city budget. Well, guess what? My experience in that lean environment at Action Target was exactly what was needed. We had to lose some of our great employees. Well, I had done that before. I had experience with it. Um, and um, I don't know how I would have navigated that with, without that experience. So how long were you mayor? Eight years. And then how long after did you decide you wanted to? I had, uh, it was a very hard decision for me, but I decided not to run for a third term as mayor. It was pretty close to that 10 years, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I felt like I um, was overstaying my welcome and my magic, if, if that makes sense. That if, if you push those things too long and too hard, um, and it was, it was time for a fresh pair of legs. So I'd made the decision not to run as mayor, and then suddenly Jason Chaffetz announced he was not going to run. Being the mayor of the largest city in the district automatically put me in a little bit of a spotlight of people saying, hey, are you going to run? So it started this very intense um, evaluation on my part of, is that the right thing for me to go do? And, and made that decision while I was still mayor, uh, but finishing out the end of my term. So what did you evaluate in yourself that you just said, finally, yeah, I'm gonna give this a shot? I had had a lot of interaction with Congress as mayor, and I wasn't impressed. <laughs> it was not a job that appealed to me. Why not? Um, so the mayor gets to do things, right, and, and run a city, and you, you're, you're right there with your residents. And, and Congress, gosh, let's admit it, our approval rating nationwide is 13%. <laughs> um, we're not well-respected. Um, we're, we're dysfunctional in many ways. It just did not appeal to me. And um, so I kind of started at it from that perspective of, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to do this. 
and um, but I but I approached it with an open mind, and um, there was there was a very pivotal moment when I just knew that I needed to go do this, and that it was very important for me uh, to try. That happened as mayor, and it never was a feeling of you'll win. It was a feeling of you must go try uh, this, and that that was that window opened, and I was supposed to jump through it. So, was the process for being elected a congressman similar to what you did to become mayor? No, and it was terrible. (laughs) (laughs) One of the worst things I've done was my first campaign. Um, So I've come off a high of being mayor where I'm respected and, and had eight years of proving who I was. And you jump from that, which is nonpartisan, into a partisan world. Um, issues that I had not explored or really thought much about uh, are all of a sudden you're expected to be an expert on and be in tune with the district about how they feel about it. And I was not. And um, you, you, um, I had not been your stereotypical Republican and was um, suspect to many uh, because of that. And then that interlaced with about $800,000 of out-of-state money that came in specifically with negative ads targeted at me. I still remember like a mailer with like, I think your face and Hillary Clinton's together. Yes, one came out with Bernie Sanders. Yeah, it was amazing. And it was about $800,000 in three weeks that was spent. And it, at the time, it felt like everything that I had accomplished as mayor was being taken away from me. That, that reputation, that magic, that, um, that we had done something special in Provo, it felt like they were taking that away. And it was very, very painful. It was a dark, frankly, a dark point in my life um, of, um, wow, what have I gotten myself into? Let's face it, in Provo, everybody wanted me to be successful. In national politics, at least half the people want you to fail. And so social media has been a real challenge because every time we put something out on social media, you got a dozen people who only want to spew yuck. Um, and and um, it makes it a, a very difficult challenge to communicate in through that same medium that we were so successful at in Provo City because you've now introduced um, all these people without good intentions. Where in, in, in Provo... You had people that disagreed with you, but there was almost always good intentions. Yeah. So you mentioned this is like a dark time, all this negativity that's coming your way. How did you get yourself through, or in just in general, like dark times, how do you get yourself through that? Yeah, plow through it, right? You, you put your head down and plow through it. I was committed. I'd already made the decision. There was no backing out. Although I will tell you, in hindsight, if there was an easy way out, I would. this time I would have taken it. Um, but you put your head down and and you plow through it. Did you get the same looks when you told people you were running for Congress? Um, it was a little different because I'd had the experience as mayor and um, people knew me as, as uh, somebody who had had some success there. So it was a little different uh, this time. So how many people did you run against? <laughs> I forgot. I'll bet there were roughly a dozen Republicans. And then once I made it through the primary, there were close to a dozen other candidates too, wow. from independence to you know Democrat Party and the Libertarian Party, and they were all there. So was the race results, because you obviously won, was it as close as your first mayoral uh, um, I actually did a little bit better okay. uh, than that. Um, it was um, too close for me. Yeah. In the political world, they say it was a good win. Mm-hmm. But for me, unless it's massive, it's not a good win. Yeah. Why yeah. do you think you won? So those who were helping me and advising me were, were stunned. I had some people actually from out of state help, and they didn't get it. They were sure when they saw the $800,000 come in against me that it was over. And what they learned through some surveying is that the eight years of being mayor couldn't be undone with a, a flyer that landed in somebody's mailbox. I had gone to too many Eagle Courts. I had gone to too many schools in my pajamas to read to elementary kids. <laughs> you know, I, they couldn't undo that. Um, it felt like it was being undone to me, right, when, in the middle of it. Mm-hmm. But the reality of it is they couldn't undo that. And that the eight years of laying that groundwork of who I really was 
uh, I think is what pushed us through that. Hmm. So you came into Congress at an interesting time, and I know your first <laughs> month was kind of a whirlwind. So yeah. do you want to like just share a couple of insights and stories from that first month? Um, one November 7th was sworn in uh, November uh, 13th. So you get you go from campaign mode to you've got to be back in D.C. I actually had an interesting meeting with Paul Ryan where he said, hey, can I wait till January 1 to be sworn in because I want to finish my term as mayor. And he looked at me and he laughed. He said, no, I need you back here. And so sworn in um, November 13th, within 10 minutes of being sworn in, and, and let me just stop for a minute to say, one of the coolest experiences of my life was being sworn in. Imagine being on the House floor, Paul Ryan up there, raise your arm to the square in front of 430 or so colleagues. And then up in the gallery, I had uh, my wife, all of them, every one of my children, their spouses, and my siblings. And it, it was a really cool moment for me. But then they handed me a voting card 10 minutes later, and I'm voting. Yeah. And um, what were you voting on? It, fortunately, it was nothing, you know, <laughs> I mean, we do a lot of votes back there that are not really highly controversial and they had some pretty soft things you know naming post offices and, and things like that but literally four days later we voted on tax reform so I had four days to, to cast a vote on one of the most significant pieces of legislation in many years and I like to tell my colleagues you know you guys worked on this for 31 years and I got it done within four days <laughs> of being here and um, and then we we moved very quickly into this uh, budget uh, these budget issues. I've been in Congress for just over a year. We've had four shutdowns, and um, I found myself within a couple of weeks um, being faced with a vote that would increase the deficit by three hundred billion dollars. And that was introduced by my Republican colleagues, and they were asking me to vote for that. And it was so counter to the, the, the candidate that, I, you know, that what I had run on and what the values of Utah were, but I just couldn't vote for it. And so within a few short weeks, I'm facing this showdown with the party where I'm just saying, guys, I can't do this one. And uh, that was a, a really interesting experience as well. Yeah, so I want to know, because you were kind of going against the party there a little bit, I mean, is it like House of Cards? Are you uh, getting pulled into backdoor meetings and, you know, threatenings are happening or um, blackmail. Yeah. <laughs> so um, there were elements of that, uh, not not in the blackmail or in, yeah, yeah. In, in, in things like that. But I will tell you there were lots of conversations where it was like, no, we need you to do this. And uh, the night before the vote, I was getting phone calls every 30 minutes um, telling me, uh, you know, that I had to vote with the team. But I'm really glad I didn't because it's like a lot of things in life where that first thing sets the tone of if I had folded and voted the way they wanted me to, then I think forever they know that I'll vote and vote and vote the way they want me to. And because I didn't, I, I have not yet had, I've not had that experience since then, um, if that makes sense. And so I, I think in many ways that was more pivotal than I knew uh, when I made that decision, um, because it set the tone for the fact that I, I'm going to have my own mind. So, once again, you did it with being a mayor, but being a congressman, what does your day-to-day -day look like? Is it just a series of, you know, getting calls? Yeah, is that video things? coming out? Or? Yeah. <laughs> I, I would like to do the video, but um, I'm not quite sure how to do it. The reality of it is I have this dual life, and one, I have a life in Washington, D.C., and a life in Utah. And they are absolutely 100% different. I have a different bed. I have a different set of clothes. I have a different staff. I have a different office. I have a different routine. Um, and then um, I have, then I come to Utah. And the analogy I use is the best way I can explain it is you get into this routine where you're coming back for three or four days and then you're going back for, th for four or five days. And when it's time to go back, it feels like somebody has grabbed you out of a dream. It's a very vivid dream and said, no, here's your new reality, right? And there's your new office staff, here's your new set of clothes, here's your new car, you know, here's, everything is different than it was 30 minutes ago. And then you just get used to that and the time zone, and they go, time to wake up, and they slam you into this other uh, reality. <laughs> and the only thing that's the same is the briefcase I carry back and forth, right, between yeah. the two places. 
so the days in Washington, D.C. Are, are centered around probably at least three major activities, voting, meeting with constituents, and, and, and hearing their issues, and committee work. And um, those are three major functions that they do back here. Back in the district, it's um, we don't have voting. That's why we're able to come back home. But it's meeting with constituents. It's dealing with issues in the district and, and spending time. Uh, town hall meetings, we've gone crazy. We did over 100 in my first year uh, because we really wanted to prove um, that that was one of the differences about me, that, that differentiator yeah. is that I, I will be here with you. I will be accountable and uh, really have enjoyed those um, town hall meetings. How much time do you spend in D.C. versus Utah? Like, what's that ratio? Um, if, it was, if I had to pick a ratio, I'd probably say it's probably two-thirds uh, D.C., a third here. The reason it's hard is there's different phases. Uh, you go through phases for a while where um, you're probably coming back three out of four weekends for three days, uh, maybe four. And then we have a summer recess in August where we're here the whole month. Um, this week, I've been in the district uh, the whole week. Uh, but I think overall, it's about two-thirds in D.C. Cool. So um, my dad has asked me to ask this. Uh, apparently, you've been in Air Force One. <laughs> uh, I'd been in Congress just three weeks when President Trump announced he was coming to Utah to rescind uh, the Bears Ears Monument. Tons of controversy surrounds that, and, and we won't take time to go into that. But on the way home, I was invited to fly on Air Force One. So after just three weeks of being in Congress, found myself on Air Force One, and um, the president uh, came back and greeted us. If you've seen the movie Air Force One, it's exactly like exactly like really that. yes. So we were in a room, and uh, there was a conference table in the middle. It was the delegation, and we were all sitting around talking. The president came in. We chatted with him for a minute. And then just as about 20, 30 minutes out from D.C., uh, we were invited up into his cabin uh, to land with him. So there I am sitting in a, in, in a room, oh, I would probably guess maybe 15 by 15 with the President of the United States behind his desk and other members of the delegation. I've been in Congress three weeks and everybody's doing all this small talk and I'm sitting there with my eyes, like just <laughs> huge eyes. And I looked out the window and I see the Washington Monument as I'm looking out the window. And there was a little lull in the conversation, and I said, Mr. President, you gotta understand, I'm in Air Force One with the President of the United States. How cool is that? I don't care what you feel about Trump, you've gotta admit yeah. that that's a, that's a surreal experience. So he said, come here, come here, come here, come here. And he made me come stand behind him, and then he said, somebody take a picture. And so I had this picture of me standing next to the president, and a few minutes before this happened, he says, Hey, who wants a, a, a Diet Coke? I don't really drink soda, but the President of the United States offered me a drink. <laughs> I'm going to take it. Yeah. So I'm standing there with my Diet Coke, and he's got his Diet Coke uh, on the table. And we both happen to have red ties and white shirts and navy blue suits. And there I am standing behind him. And so I carry that picture on my phone and, and share that with people. And it was a very surreal experience. That's awesome. So I know, like, presidents have weird food restrictions or things on there. I'm curious, did he have, like... You know, Big Macs and fast food that everyone talks about? There were no Big Macs. It was a delicious meal, but one of the little souvenirs. We were all looking around for souvenirs, yeah. right? And, you were, you know, okay, is this nailed to the wall? I'm going to leave it, right? <laughs> it's not nailed to the wall. I'm taking it. So he has one of his signature things are M&M's. So he has oh, these M&M's packaged in his, in his own package with his uh, signature. It's not his original signature, but on signature of it. So I grab one of those and I have that on my... In my bookcase uh, as one of the few things that wasn't nailed down. That's cool. Well, um, as we wrap up, we kind of like to do a little popcorn questions. Just okay. a couple really kind of silly, casual, fun, sure. small ones. And then we'll kind of close with like one or something. Yeah, but, one final thought. Um, I guess I can start. Yeah. So, uh, Mayor, eight years after you had to go to one restaurant in Provo. No, oh, I'm not going to do, it. do this, it. This is like asking me. <laughs> Which is my favorite kid? I love all my kids. <laughs> I seriously. Okay, how about the, the last I, restaurant you ate at? Gurus. Okay. Um, What'd you order? That cilantro lime quesadilla mm-hmm. and that and the salmon. I'm not, I, that's my hardest decision. I'm yeah. 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 But, but love it there. Yeah. Cool. Nice. Favorite pair of socks? So that's a little bit like asking my favorite kid, too, but I will tell you this. I remember the first pair of socks I bought that wasn't black or navy blue. Mm-hmm. 
And I, I bought them up at Macy's. I walked through, and they were on a cell rack. Nobody would buy them. This was long before people were wearing colorful socks. And I thought, oh, that would be fun because they're on sale. So I bought them. I still have that pair, and I still wear it today. And because it was my first, those are my favorite. That's awesome. What's the design for them? They're stripes. Okay. Um, by today's standards, only only somewhat uh, loud. Yeah. yeah. Um, but um, just a lot of fun memories with those pair of socks. Love it. Are you in the middle of any TV shows on Netflix <laughs> or Hulu? Uh, so... Um, yeah, I'm in the middle of about six different <laughs> series. So I watch West Wing. Uh, I like that. My wife and I have started Designated Survivor. Uh, I like that. The um, one with the guy where they blow up. Yes. Oh, yeah. yeah. I started that too. I, I, to be honest, House of Cards is a little dark for me. Yeah. yeah it's kind of heavy. I, you know, so when I watch TV, I, I'm always looking for something that lightens mm-hmm. me up a little bit. And that one's a little dark for me. We love, uh, uh, this is this is a regular network, but Big Bang, uh, that's my wife's favorite. Okay. So yeah. we, back in my first campaign when I ran for mayor, we started this habit of, it was our stress relief. Um, you have all these people saying these things about you, and, and we fell into this habit of every night watching a 30-minute sitcom before we go to sleep. And we've kept that all the way through today. And so okay. we watch Big Bang, we watch Frasier, we watch Seinfeld. Um, for a long time it was Everybody Loves Raymond yeah. um, mm-hmm. great stuff yeah love it okay um, I want to know the funniest moment as a congressman <laughs> so do you have time for a little longer explanation yeah. we'll dive in alright so I'll tell you but you can't tell anybody because yeah. it's a secret it's we'll like, just mute the mic <laughs> I don't tell very many people this so you remember I was getting the pressure um, on that budget vote and um, when it came time to vote, it happened to be three o'clock in the morning and the way that things wound up. And I walked into the chambers to vote and normally it's a buzz, it's 435 people talking and moving around. And I walked in, they'd already started the vote and it was deathly silent. And what had happened is all the Republicans who were going to vote for it had already voted and it wasn't enough to pass. The Democrats who would vote for it were waiting to vote because they wanted to prove to the Republicans that we needed their vote to get it passed. I had decided not to vote for it, so I thought, oh my gosh, I do not want to be lobbied anymore. i got to go hide for a few minutes while this drama is playing out. Earlier in the day, I had noticed that there was a C-SPAN TV in the men's room right next to the floor where we vote. So I thought, great, I can go into the restroom, I can watch what's happening on C-SPAN, and then run in and vote uh, just last minute so they won't lobby me. So I was in the restroom and I thought, ooh, what if they come in here and now this is even worse, I'm cornered, right? So I noticed that I could be inside the stall and still see the TV, right? So I went in the stall and then I'm thinking, I'm in a stall, I'm, I'm, let me do what you do when you're in a stall. And I won't go any more graphic than that, but I started <laughs> doing my business and the speaker decided, that he was going to cast the Democrats without having voted. So he hammered down the, the, the mallet and, and started to close the vote. And there I was in the stall doing my business with seconds to go vote. So just like in the movies, I'm come running out of the stall, I'm tucking my shirt tail in, I'm doing up my belt and trying to get it in there to vote. And I'm running the house floor and my, my suit jacket's caught in my belt. You know, it's exactly like the movies. And there's these little polling stations where you put your voting card in and vote. And the very first one I came to, there was a gentleman in front of it in a wheelchair. And I just said, I don't care. This is too important. I threw my card in over the top of him. And he said, hey, what are you doing? And it distracted me. And so I hit yes. It was kind of muscle memory because most of what we vote on, I hit yes. And I realized with his horror that I had made the wrong vote. Oh, no. And uh, so... The way these machines work, if it's in the early time of voting, you can actually change your vote. And so I hit the no. I go, no, 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 no. And I just pushed this button. No, 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 no. And it wouldn't change my vote. So I had to go down into what's called the well, which is down in the bottom in front of everybody, fill out a card, hand it to the clerk. And as I'm sneaking out the door, he reads over the microphone, Curtis, Utah, changes vote. No. <laughs> and I snuck out of there, caught a plane, and came home. That's amazing. That's awesome. 
Cool. Well, we should probably wrap up. Yeah. So we'll do, we like to ask one final question and then we'll wrap up. Yeah, I can go first. Uh, One book for these people that are on the precipice, what book would you recommend? Wow, one book. Um, One book. I don't think that that thing exists. (laughs) That would, when you say, oh, you're talking not necessarily for, for, for Congress. For business, and not just even for, just people who want to, you know, kind of step into the dark and take a risk, business, politics. So, you know, I would tell you um, probably one of the books that was most influential for me was um, a book by the chairman of GE, Jack Welch, and I'm, I'm struggling to remember the name of it, but it, it talks about his business principles. And um, it was very influential on me. I read it back when I was at at Action Target. It talks about things like, you know, you're really not doing anybody any favors when you keep an employee who's not doing well at his job. One of the best things we can do if we truly care about them is move them on to the next phase or to something else in their life. And and I'll tell you, as a young uh, businessman, it was so hard to transition people when they weren't doing a good job. And things like that in the book and uh, and the way he set goals and and there were just a lot of things Jack Welch did that were very influential on me um, as a a young uh, entrepreneur. Awesome. Okay. My last question is, um, what's like been the greatest failure in your life and what did you like learn from that? Oh, wow. My greatest failure. How long do we have? Holy cow. <laughs> I don't think too long. Um, I, I think that it's not one thing, but it's an attribute, and, and that is the inability to, um, to enjoy the moment. Um, I think that you know, those that are entrepreneurs or if you have any type A in you, it's always the next thing um, and, and stopping and, and really enjoying. My wife has the ability to enjoy the moment. And she's forced me into that a lot. A lot of the vacations we've taken and things like that have been uh, because of her. And I wish I had the ability to enjoy the moment more and, and just relax um, a little bit. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much for sitting down with us. This yeah. has been really yeah. Fantastic. Yeah.